Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That's me, and today I've got great news. It's that I recently traveled to Seattle, and when I was there, I got to interview Ken Jennings, the man who set the world record for Jeopardy wins back in 2004 and has parlayed that into a full career. He is currently the co-host of Jeopardy, which remains one of the most popular shows on TV. This was a great interview. There's a ton here for Jeopardy nerds, but also a discussion about the way the media environment has changed, why Jeopardy works in that radically changed environment, and really interestingly to me, the real tension that Jennings and his coworkers feel about their desire to modernize the show, to try to reach new audiences, because the old ones are going to go away, and the fact that the people who watch Jeopardy today don't want it to change at all, ever. Ken is really frank and, and candid and and curious, and he's a great talker. This is my platonic ideal of a Recode Media interview. I also have some bad news. We got the audio back from the Crosscuts Ideas Festival, who hosted our conversation, and that audio is not very good because I think the technical term is shit happens. Some good news, though. My producers, Jelani and Travis, along with the help of Chris Shirtliff, our audio wizard, managed to do some magic. They tell me they even use some generative AI on these files. And now Ken Jennings sounds pretty good, and I sound not so good, but good enough, we think, that you can understand me without having to squint, or whatever you do with your ears, whatever the squint equivalent is with your ears. Uh, anyway, the real important person in this conversation is Ken, not me, so I hope you enjoy it. Here is me and my partially AI-aided voice talking to Ken Jennings. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. I'm going to ask you some mechanical questions about how Jeopardy works, but I want to start big picture first. If you weren't the guy who won 74 consecutive wins on Jeopardy and was now the co-host, what were you going to do as a career? I think about that a lot, actually. I was, uh, I was always a real trivia nerd as a kid. These quiz kids, know-it-all kids, tend to come out of the womb like that, I think. Like, clutching a copy of the Guinness Book of World Records. Super popular. That they had in your... And, of course, popular with the ladies. Kids love that. Uh, I mean, that's what happens. At some point, you hit the, the Judy Bloom age where you're like, oh, it is not a hit with girls to know Captain Kirk's middle name. And, and as a result, I kind of went into the trivia closet for, I don't know, over a decade. And, you know, never really thought, hey, uh, you've got a weird associative memory kind of a brain. What do you do with that? I went into computers because it seemed like that was the future. Born and raised here? From here, yeah. We moved overseas when I was a kid. Uh, I went to kindergarten through first grade here in Seattle and then used to come back here in the summers. But we were living in, in South Korea for most of the 80s. And... Um, like by my mid-20s, I was a computer programmer and not a particularly talented or happy one, having a bit of an early midlife crisis. My wife says I was always coming home from work with some new scheme. What if I take the foreign service exam and we move to Gabon or, you know, law school even? Who knows? Uh, and instead, just on a whim, I tried out for a game show. So I guess there's a universe where I'm a mildly unhappy 
software developer. Just be grinding it out, complaining about yeah. back to work. Probably still to to binging office. Atlanta uh, and uh, Reservation Dogs. Like I'm sure my TV life doesn't change much, but I think my career would be very different. So you hit this run in 2004, and I remember I was not an avid Jeopardy uh, watcher then. What? But then. But I remember your name. It was a big deal. Um, did you think, wow, this is amazing, and once I'm done with this, I'm going to go back to being an unhappy computer programmer? Or do you think, yeah. I'm going to turn this into something else? It was a crazy roller coaster ride, but I never had any sense that it was sustainable. Part of me still doesn't, actually. <laughs> like, you know, I had our, you know, I had won maybe 40 or 50 shows before any of them started to air. So we knew there was a fun thing that was going to happen mm -hmm. in our lives, and maybe I was going to go on Letterman. But like, I didn't think it was any kind of a life-changing thing. And uh, we had like a bet on how many people would ever recognize me like, at Costco lifetime. And I thought the over-under was like 10. I was like, yeah, nobody cares who's on Jeopardy. This will last a few weeks, and then something will happen on Fear Factor, and nobody will remember me anymore, and, and that's fine. So at what point do you go, oh, this is a thing, and was it something where you were actively trying to extend the half-life of that fame? Were there people coming to you proposals? Did you have to think about how to manage that, or did you sort of back into it? Yeah, I never had like a five-year plan, but somebody did ask if I wanted to write a book. And I kind of did. I was like a frustrated English major in college who switched to computers when, I think when I heard the joke, uh, the old joke, what's the difference between an English major and a large pepperoni pizza? The, the pizza can feed a family of four. I, I think that's when I, that's when I became a computer science double major. Um, and so like, yeah, I'd like to write a book. I don't know what that would be, but that seems like an interesting challenge, more interesting than the Java apps I'm writing at work. Um, so I took a leave of absence from my software company and started to work on the book, and that just kind of snowballed, and I'm still on leave, I guess. They have not called me in a while. <laughs> the, I think a lot about the, for professionally, I think about how the media landscape has changed. This happened to you in 2004. The internet existed then. We'd already gone through the, the first web bubble. But for most people still, the internet is something you got to through AOL, you know, maybe a browser. There's social really media doesn't no exist, social which is media. very important if you're a Jeopardy contestant. Much better time to, to be a, a, a rando on TV before, yeah, before so Facebook and Twitter. You think about what happens if you go through that run now, if you just transport yourself 20 years ahead and how your career plays out differently um, in 2023 as opposed to doing this back in 2004? Well, I see it now firsthand with our, you know, we've had some high profile super champs lately, James Holtzauer five years ago, Amy Schneider last year. These are all people who have the same kind of roller coaster summer that I did in 2004, but they're now trying to do it in the age of social media and all the kind of soul killing aspects of that, the harassment and whatever, um, the addictions. And, uh, and there's but also, also a way for people to reach their people too. Exactly. Like, uh, and you know, preparing for Jeopardy has changed very much in the age of the internet. Um, there's now an online archive that has hundreds of thousands of Jeopardy clues from past games, and people will literally build flashcard decks or build simulators in their houses where they can kind of drill themselves on Jeopardy like a Rocky movie montage. So in the, in the past, it was kind of a thing you would do as a lark. Hey, uh, you know, I like to annoy my friends at Bar Trivia, like I'll, I should try out for Jeopardy. And now you've, that's kind of been professionalized a little bit. We were talking backstage. It's amazing that Jeopardy is as big as it is today in a world where attention is fractured, where everyone can seek out their own stuff. It's a, it's a syndicated broadcast TV show. That's, that's a dead, dying medium, right? Like, yeah, the fact that syndicated broadcast TV still exists 
It would be like telling an alien that hee-haw is still a big hit or something. So can, we, were, we were trying to figure out the actual audience. We think it's around nine-ish million per episode? Yeah, it's, you know, it's the most watched thing on TV, basically, that's not the NFL. You know, no, nothing's really bigger than Jeopardy or Wheel unless it's got a quarterback, which it's, is insane that this is the, now the last remnants of American monoculture. Why does it work? It's largely a legacy. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love the show, and we put on a good show every night, but we have 60 years of goodwill if you go back to Art Fleming, uh, and if you just do the Alex Trebek years, that's 1984. That's almost 40 years of people, not just um, kind of being vaguely aware that Jeopardy exists because it's in Groundhog Day, but like people who make it an appointment. Like people, you hit an age in America where you make Jeopardy part of your evening. You know, it's, it might as well be a meal. And so there, people watch it with a sense of ritual. The way they used to with Ed Sullivan or Carson, it's just the last thing. Right, the like late that. night hosts are going through the same discussion and right. existential question. It's not exactly your problem, but it kind of is because you're making a living is. doing it. And we're the last man standing, really, because there's no more Cronkite. There's no more Carson. There's no more agreed upon. There's SNL and there's the Jeopardy wheel hour. And, and that's about it. And it's a sense of tradition. You know, people watch it with... All, the, all that baggage, all the good memories of watching it with dad or grandma or in the dorms in college or you know, whatever those decades of, of goodwill they have with the show. How do you think about balancing the tension between wanting to keep those loyal fans who are seeking you out in a world where it's not easy to find you with maybe the theoretical hope of bringing in new people who didn't grow up with this? Or do you say, you know what, we've got an existing audience and that's what we're sticking with. We want to make them happy first and foremost. It's a creative question and it's a commercial question. From a commercial standpoint, uh, Jeopardy, because it's syndicated, does not have uh, corporate overlords. I mean, it does, it's got Sony, but like it's, we're beholden to 100 affiliates all over the country. And if Dayton is nervous that the ratings are down, we need to put out a fire in Dayton. Um, so it's a very, being in a syndicated TV, you, you know, you're serving 100 masters and they do not want other ways to see Jeopardy. You know, they don't, everybody under 45 wants to see Jeopardy streaming. But guess what? The people who run our affiliates in Houston and Philadelphia do not want Jeopardy streaming because you know we're the only reason people are watching these these affiliates in Houston. I tried and watching on Hulu this morning before I came over. No, they do not want me watching old episodes. Right. And then there's the creative problem of loyal fans who watch it for a sense of ritual. Like a, a game, the game of Jeopardy that will be on Monday will be largely identical, almost down to the second, as a game in. 1994 or even 1964. Um, you know, hardly, the clues are not cardboard anymore like they were for Art Fleming. But except for that, people expect it to feel exactly the same almost down to the second every night. And you want to try to figure out how to hone the format to draw in new audiences. But you've got a recalcitrant group of, uh, of uh, what should we say? I, don't, I was going to say diehards. What's Loyal fans. Loyalists. Loyalists. Loyalist. So it's, I, I, can, I can sense some of the frustration. What's something you'd like to do when someone says, no, that's too wild? Even the smallest of cosmetic changes. Uh, it was announced yesterday, that, you know, we got a primetime tournament coming up on ABC in May. We're going to invite back James Holtzauer and Amy Schneider and some of our, our most talented recent champs. And we decided to add one little cosmetic fill-up, which is that uh, we're going to show viewers at home in advance where the Daily Double is. Because we noticed that there's a lot of suspense in studio, because we know where, and you know, somebody who needs it will be heading right for it. Oh no, they veered away and they picked the wrong card. Like category. when ESPN transformed poker, they show you the whole card. It's exactly that, yeah. And you, you can always look away if you prefer surprise to suspense, I guess. But you know, somebody saw that on the internet yesterday and now I've got Jeopardy fans angry that we are 
in their words, putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo or, or uh, by telling people where the Daily Double is 90 seconds early. It doesn't affect gameplay at all, but they're traditionalists. Do you guys talk backstage about sort of a, a, a tipping point where you're going to have to say, look, we cannot be managing a declining asset. We have to figure out ways to grow this thing or else we'll be talking to a very, very tiny audience. I mean, obviously, yeah, that's a number one concern is how do you make sure that uh, Jeopardy continues to find the audience that it has for generations? And there's also the question of, uh, you know, just prognosticating what is the future of syndicated television? I, I think it, it's no longer not a will that change, but now it's like, how many weeks notice will we have when that collapses. So I'm not going to say television is looking for lifeboats, but we're certainly looking for Yeah, I mean, the, the broadcast networks are talking about like, giving up one of their hours of prime time and just saying, you guys have it. We, yeah, this is not a secret. The, the, the TV that Gen X and Up grew up with is, is not the same and not coming back. All right, so this is kind of your problem, but there's also producers and people who right. own the show and kind of their problem. It's, it's, it's way above my pay grade, and maybe I'll get a phone call about something I've said here. <laughs> but you spend a lot of time thinking about it. So let's talk about the actual work you do. What, what is the hardest part of your job, and how is it different than being a contestant in terms of the demands placed upon your psyche, your brain, your body? Hosting is incredibly difficult. I mean, being a contestant is stressful. There's no two ways about it. You're seeing people, every, three people every night on Jeopardy who have basically just picked up their sport that morning and are gonna try it on national TV, you know? Like imagine you're watching the Olympics and the full vaulters have just tried out the pole that morning. Yeah, I'll give this a go. Like that's kind of what Jeopardy is, three, three amateurs giving it a shot. And so as a result, what seems like a very kind of relaxed, cerebral thing on TV is an intense gladiatorial gauntlet for the contestants. It's like suddenly you're in Tron and you're on the backside of the screen and you realize that, uh, you know, you're in the light cycle now and it's, it's life and death. Um, so co contestants, uh, you know, have, that's an adjustment. It's very intense. But hosting's hard too. Like Alex just made it look easy for... 38 years. Uh, he was just so smooth and so graceful, unflappable, that I think people got the impression that that's an easy job. And as a result, when we had a series of guest hosts a couple years ago, we would have different kinds of journalists coming in thinking, yeah, yeah, I do, I do one of these on weekends all the time. I'll just read the prompter. And they were all, you know, Anderson Cooper has been in war zones. You know, Katie Couric has done live interviews with every world leader. And, you know, pe even people like that were like, whoa, like Jeopardy is kind of its own beast. Um, the game moves very fast. 61 clues in a half an hour is a lot. The hard part is that the same person, the host, is not just, you know, you're, you're, kind of, you're doing everything. There's one person. You're the referee. You're kind of adjudicating things in real time, you know, with the help of a table of judges, but a lot of that is on the host's shoulders. But you're also the booth team. You're also play-by-play uh, -play and color commentary for the folks at home. And you're a host, you know. Fundamentally, you're trying to be a welcoming presence for these three very nervous Contestants. So you start off life as a computer programmer. You become a Jeopardy winner. How do you become a Jeopardy host? Do you train? Is there training for that? How do you learn how to do all that? I am not a broadcaster, obviously. Like, uh, no training for it. And so for years, people would say, hey, when Alex packs it in, you ever think of hosting Jeopardy? Like, as if that's a thing I could just decide to do. Like, yeah, I've decided I'll become the host of Jeopardy. And I would always say, no, that's insane. No successful television show will just hand the reins to a non-broadcaster. This is not Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, they're not, they didn't run this thing for 40 years hoping the one lucky boy would inherit the factory, you know? So nobody's more surprised than me that they gave a non-broadcaster a shot. But I guess it turned out to be a, a, a tactical question. Can you teach a, a, a broadcaster yep. Jeopardy or can you teach a Jeopardy person 
I mean, you've got a gift of gab, right? You're, you're good at that, but that's something you've always had? You mean? Jeopardy's a real good cure for stage fright, I would say. Like, nothing in your life will ever have the pressure. Like, I just walked out here, and if this is entertaining, that's great. And if it's not, I'm still going to go home after and nothing changes. On Jeopardy, you get one chance, and maybe you're going to win a $30,000 check. And if you're $1 short, you go home with lovely parting gifts. You know, it's a very unforgiving field. You get one bite at the apple. And it's nerve-wracking, and I find that since that day, I am not nervous in any situation because it's always better than Jeopardy. And do you, do, did you approach it like, well, all right, there is no boot camp for this. I'm going to teach myself. I'm going to study game tape. I'm going to study Alex. I'm going to study other shows. Studying Alex was kind of the key. Like, luckily, I had seen him do it up close in person, you know, for probably nearly 100 hours. And then I'd been watching him since I was 10 years old. You know, living overseas, all we had was Armed Forces TV, uh, which meant me and all my friends had one channel at all times. Imagine a world, if you will, with no streaming, like no, no cable, no VHS even in 1984. I think we didn't have a, a tape player yet. So me and all my friends would run home every day to watch whatever the Army put on. And for whatever reason, the Pentagon put Jeopardy on after school. So like Alex Trebek kind of raised me. And it was always a, like Jeopardy was like a safe space where smart kids were being rewarded for that and celebrated for that. Did you, did you do it in the living room? Did you pretend you were Alex in the living room? You know, I did play game show host as a kid. Uh, like when I was like six or seven years old, my parents gave me one of these blackboards for Christmas, you know, thinking I would draw. And instead I would draw the Family Feud board and make everybody play Family Feud. So, so you're like one of the super athletes that's always kicking a ball against the wall or a drummer who's banging on stuff. From you, you had this in your genes. But self-taught. Like I'm an outsider artist. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't have any actual training. I'm Daniel Johnston being like, I'm going to record an album. You know, right. I, and, and I really did kind of have to learn on the fly. But luckily I had seen Alex do it and he, he kind of perfected the art. What of was the, the thing, that, the habit that was hardest to learn or to break? The thing I was surprised about was how little Alex did. Like the light touch, I think, is really important. You know, he would always say, game's not about the host, it's about the clues and the players. He was never announced as the star of Jeopardy the way his predecessor had been. He was always the host of Jeopardy because he was like, I'm, I'm not the star, the game's not about me. You know, like imagine anybody in television saying that today. You have to, you have to be a, you know, a gentlemanly Canadian from the 1930s, I think, to, to think about TV that way. Uh, but he, he was absolutely right. You watch tape of him, and he is doing the least amount of work possible. Not out of laziness, but just out of economy. Like, even the verbiage. You imagine him saying something like, all right, you're in third place, uh, Gordon. Now, you've seen the categories. Go ahead and select for us. And often, it's just like, Gordon, go. And the show works just great and has a real punch and an energy. Do you watch game tape of yourself? I hate to, but it helps. Yeah. Because, you know, the things that annoy you about your performance are exactly why you should be watching that day. When you won that 74 consecutive streak, that was an anomaly, right? Obviously, it's the record. But you didn't have a lot of people going on long streaks, and now it seems like it happens quite often. People are rattling off 10 wins in a row. Did something change in the game? Did something change in the way people train for the game? There's like a decade-long string around, I don't know, 2006 to 2016, where like nobody wins more than 10, basically. And I'm thinking, this can be done. I know this can be done. You know, there, there is a plateau where if you hit it, the returning champions got some advantages. You know, you're less nervous. Um, you've done it a few times. Your timing's getting better. And yet they're bringing in fresh meat off the truck every day. You know, pe people who are as dazed as you were on your first day. Um, so I was like, there's got to be a plateau where these long streaks are possible. And we've seen quite a few in recent years. We've had a, 
a 40, a 38. Mateo was a 23. You know, we had like three or four really long streaks last year alone. And we don't know if we fully understand. So it could be randomness. It could be. It's a small people, sample size. It yeah. could be chance. But I think a lot of it is what you say that people now, you know, we're in the money ball era where the old techniques have been shown to be superstitious, suboptimal. Now people know there is a way to train for Jeopardy. There's a smarter way to wager. You know, you can spend an afternoon and become a perf mathematically perfect Jeopardy wagerer. And yet people go on the show for a lark and, and just bet wrong because they haven't really studied the odds. So the premise of Moneyball, right, is, oh, you, th you know, stats that you used to think were important are less important. It's more important to get on base than yeah. to get a hit. What is the Jeopardy equivalent of Moneyball? The Jeopardy equivalent is that, you know, uh, on base percentage is daily doubles. You know, we always think about the game going down to final Jeopardy, like that's the climactic moment. But in fact, to win a long streak, you've got to eliminate error. You know, historically, final Jeopardy conversions around 50%. You do not want to put your game in the hands of 50% conversion. What you want to do is put the game away earlier. Daily double conversions around 80% historically. What you want is big wagers on daily doubles so that by the time final Jeopardy arrives, you have doubled up on the competition and you're out of reach. And so when you watch James Holtzauer start at the bottom of the board, build up a, a war chest, hit a daily double, bet it all, He's demoralized the opponents, like the game's over by the first commercial. Um, that's Moneyball. So we just saw baseball this year. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I read about it. They've, they've changed the rules to counteract the Moneyball stuff. Yeah. They took over, they got rid of the, the shift, shift where you put all the players in the outfield on one side and it looked ridiculous. Um, and they can make the game go faster and people complained about it, and it seems like it's working. We talked earlier about the fact that people don't want any shift in their game at all. Have you guys talked about tweaking the game to counteract the, the money ball aspect? Hypothetically, I don't know how serious this is, because as I say, changes to the format are anathema to a lot of Jeopardy viewers. But like just speaking purely for myself here, like there are things you could do. Daily double placement is not random. Humans look at the board and decide which clues and categories have the best daily double vibe. You know, it's a clue that might take you a little longer to figure out, might be a moment of drama. Um, so because a human is placing that, it's not random and contestants know where to look for them. They generate heat maps of where daily doubles are, like you would for a pitcher or a, or a batter. And that's why they have an, so we, you know, we could randomize daily double placement better. Um, Wait, so there are contestants at home putting together heat maps? He maps up daily double finding, yeah. And the funny thing is, it works. Like, you watch Jim Soltzauer play, and he can kind of look. I don't know what his method is, and he won't tell me for, you know, reasons of trade secrecy, I guess. But something about either the category spread or position on the board, he has an amazing sense of intuition for where they are. I did this pure, man. I did this before <laughs> heat maps. Yeah, it's all these guys chugging protein drinks and stuff, and I'm like, whatever. Like, I didn't have a gym. <laughs> I was like dragging a side of beef through the hills. We didn't have, there was not even, when I was on in 2004, you could not look up past Jeopardy clues. There was no online archive. There was one woman who had been on the show a couple years earlier, and she was like just painstakingly typing in every game on a blog where she talked to her parrot. So like every Jeopardy game was there, but it was as a dialogue between this woman and her oh. parrot. And I went through 150 games this way because this was all we had in the Stone Age. When someone's on one of these runs, which are now more common, but still by definition rare, does that create a different dynamic backstage? Is everyone sort of excited? Or is it like, um, again, like in baseball where it's a no-hitter, you don't want to say it out loud? How does that change what's going on vibe-wise? 
You know, when I was on, I now know that everyone was terrified. They had just changed the rule. It used to be you got five wins and then they gave you a car and kicked you out and you were back for the Tournament of Champions. And a few months after I had tried out for the show, they changed this rule. So by, that, that's the accident that changed my life, basically, is that I happened to try out right before they changed that rule and got on right after. So they were terrified. They have got, they've got 50 games of me in the can, and what if America hates this uh, like annoying kid? What if this is the thing that ruins Jeopardy? The games were not close. At that point, they did make a few changes, kind of like uh, you know, eliminating the shift or widening the lane mm -hmm. in basketball for Will Chamberlain. They, they started to give the challengers more of a warm-up every morning on the buzzer to try to level the playing field a bit. And we do that to this day. It's, it's a good move. Um, today, when we have a long run, uh, you know, at first we're a little nervous because, you know, what could happen? You know, people could love this uh, player, people could hate this player. You know, we don't know what it's going to do to the perception of the show. But Wait, so people hate, there are people who go on runs that are unpopular with, with, with yeah, the Yeah, I think, um, you know, I mentioned James Holtzow, our best player of his generation, very divisive. You know, hard-bitten poker player, sports gambler, enjoys kind of playing up the, he's a pro wrestling heel angle a bit. And the fact is, you know, Jeopardy viewers But that's a person are, you want to tune in to see get knocked off, right? I mean, that's the thing. We don't mind anymore. And, we, you know, whether, you know, love them or hate them, we know that people tune in for long streaks now so that we're not nervous about that. And we've learned that they always lose. They seem invincible and then something goes wrong. A missed daily double, some fluke thing will happen and that invincible player uh, will be gone and again. It's one to a customer in Jeopardy. Does it change your performance? Or are you actively sort of like, oh, we got a streak going here. I need to be aware of it, play into it. It's exciting for the host. As you know, the the long running players are actually more relaxed and able to have fun with the game. That's why the tournaments are a lot of fun. You know, Jeopardy Masters coming up in May. We've got six players, who you know, some of them have. 50, 60 Jeopardy games under their belts. They are very comfortable out there. They are not the nervous people you see every night in bad sweaters telling stories about their cats in, you know, in amazingly uh, <laughs> unfunny ways. No, these are people who know what they're doing. And so there's a lot of interplay and, and uh, rivalry, and that's a lot of fun. And so the host can feed on that energy. My producer, Travis, who is a hardcore Jeopardy person, tells me that well known that at the level of the people who are playing on your on your game, that everyone knows the answers. Everyone has sort of the equivalent knowledge base, and the real competition is buzzer based. That it's it's reflexes and hitting the buzzer. Is that true? There's a lot of truth to that. You know, everybody has passed a very hard test to be there. But it turns out I've been overstating that for years. We have started, you know, because we are now treating Jeopardy as a little more of a serious sport with playoffs and so forth, we started publishing advanced statistics, which sports fans like. And one of the things we now publish is buzzer attempts. So you can see a box score where you know how many people are buzzing. And one thing we've learned is that the players who do well are not just players who knew the same number of responses but had a slightly better timing, although timing is huge. We found that these people tend to be buzzing, you know, 10, 15 times more per game than their competition. So, but the, I think on many nights, the buzzer is the thing that... that How do you get better at buzzing? Buzzer's hard. You can't press the button as soon as you know it. You have to wait for the host to finish reading the question. And then at that point, a staffer somewhere flips the switch, activates the buzzers, a little light goes on to the side of the game board that the home viewers can't really see, and then you know you can buzz. Some people wait for the lights. My experience, if you wait for the lights, you get beat. You're trying to anticipate the light, you know, wait for the last syllable of the clue, ba-da, 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 the capital of Egypt. Boom, you know, there's like a, there's like a discernible one-syllable pause, and then you go. 
Um, but some days you have it and some days you don't. It's like golf or a golf swing or a, a baseball batter. Um, that's, you know, like in professional esports, right? You, you, you age out when you're 18 yeah. or something, right? It's, it's young people with really hyper fast reflexes. That is not the case in Jeopardy, it's obviously. It's not speed, it's rhythm. Yeah. You know, we have a 62-year-old uh, player named Sam Buttry who nearly, you know, he was in the finals of the Tournament of Champions last year. Jeopardy viewers loved him because he's a white-haired Steve Martin type and they, you know, they're used to these young hotshots. Um, but he had kind of an odd buzzer technique. I think he might do this, but he was right on the money. You know, it's, it's not age. I feel like you can age out of the knowledge side. Often our best players are right around 30. And I honestly think it's generational. Like that's the age where you still remember your parents' trivia, but you haven't stopped listening to pop music yet. You know, like, like you know, right now, like you're, you're aware of MASH and you're aware of Lizzo. You know, like you've got this, you've got some 50 year span there. And you know, you turn 40 and you start to, you know, at 20, you've, you don't have the one end yet. At 40, you've lost the other end. We'll be right back with Ken Jennings, but first a word from a sponsor. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Talk about how much you guys are spending, how much time you guys are spending trying to increase diversity both on screen and in the types of questions. So you do find, you are reaching people with different knowledge bases. How, how important is that to you one way or the other? It's a big area of emphasis right now because historically, Jeopardy's had a very hard time getting a contestant mix that looks like America. For many years, our problem was getting women to try out for the show. Um, and it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with skill level. You know, it turned out when we saw the test results, uh, you know, our, our women uh, auditioners were just as good as the men. It largely seemed to come down to confidence and specifically to a very specific kind of unearned male confidence where uh, men who watch Jeopardy think, yeah, I could do that. You know, it's the same kind of guys that are like, I bet I could beat Serena Williams for a few points. You know, it's like, like the, the utterly unearned uh, uh, average American male sense of uh, sense of superiority and we solved that problem largely by going to online auditions you know by taking away the performative aspect and just saying hey uh, go to our website and, and just for funsies try out for jeopardy uh, we were able to really address the the gender imbalance and who was trying out for jeopardy for more uh, you know racial and ethnic diversity that's something as you say you, you can address on the contestant outreach side and we think we're gonna have to be aggressive about actually like creating channels for people to get on Jeopardy. You know, how does player development work? If Jeopardy is a sport, you're not just going to wait for the good athletes to come to you. You want to have a system where you find these talents. And I think that's what's next for, next is for that, Jeopardy. Is that actually happening or is that thing you imagine is going to happen? It's, it's conver conversations we have definitely had. You know, if you're going to treat this as a sport with playoffs and stuff, you're going to need a pipeline of great players or the game fails. Nothing's worse on Jeopardy than three people who can't answer the clues. You know, you get those long pauses. Boop, boop, boop. Um, it's bad TV. So Jeopardy's never trying to trick anyone. We want correct responses. We are dying for correct responses. Uh, and we want um, high-powered, high-talented contestants that look like America. And it's just a matter of, of how you do that. And uh, as you say, part of it is the clue selection. You know, we're a self-perpetuating canon of what Jeopardy people know. And for a long time, that was a lot of white male authors. And so we perpetuated a lot of academic problems with what that canon looks like. And uh, 
How do you push those boundaries without leading to a lot of boop, 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 boop? And, you know, how do you, you know, and a lot of it is hiring. Let's, you know, our, for a long time, our writing staff looked a lot like me, middle-aged guys who carried around the Guinness Book of World Records as a kid. You know, you want to broaden that. Last that question from me before I turn it over to you guys. Like a lot of people who use Twitter, you sent out some tweets um, that you later regretted and those resurfaced periodically. Um, what is your advice for Jeopardy contestants or anyone else playing around with social media these days? And do you still use Twitter or anything else? Uh, yeah, I mean, much less in the Elon Musk era. I feel like my Twitter track record's pretty good, but, you know, it's just 10 years of saying the first thing you thought of to your friends. You know, it's pretty easy to find someone saying dumb things they should have thought twice about. Um, and that, I think that's happened to anybody who's been on Twitter for 10 years. It's actually something we talked about with contestants now, and I... You know, I reached out to the show, I don't know, five, ten years ago and said, you know, every time I talk to contestants, particularly like women who go on the show, they just have to like grind through all the online awfulness, you know, that for a couple of weeks thereafter. Like we should really be telling people who are naive about this kind of stuff. Here's what you look forward to. You may want to, you know, you may not want to read the comments. You may want to lock down your social for a week or you may want to promote it in these ways. You know, we, we just want contestants to kind of be aware and do they show up aware at this point? I think so. I yeah. mean, at, at this point, at this point, people are less surprised by that. But you really, it's it's unprecedented for them. Like they've read stories about someone who suddenly became the main character on Twitter, mm -hmm. but that's different than when it happens to you, just because you did some two second thing on a game show that went you viral. Scrub your social media as soon as you enter <laughs> the contest. All right, let's go to some audience questions. Uh, it's twenty twenty three, um, so I have to ask you an AI question. How will ChatGPT affect Jeopardy? Well, I, I've already lost on Jeopardy to an AI, you know. So I think it's—I think we already know that it's been a decade where humans are not as good at buzzing in on Jeopardy clues than uh, than question answering algorithms. But you know, we we still do the Olympics, even though trucks are faster than people. I don't, I don't think that invalidates the game at all. I spent uh, a couple weeks ago. I spent a few hours typing Jeopardy clues into ChatGPT. It is very good. It's, it's probably better than any human, even just on paper, if you take away the buzzer. Watson's Edge was, was speed related. Um, Chad GPT just has the knowledge breadth of any good human player or more. It can still be fooled. Like I was formulating Jeopardy style stuff and you could get Chad GPT to be very confidently wrong. But again, humans on Jeopardy are very I confidently like wrong I like they call it hallucinating when it's wrong. Is that what they say, hallucinating? They say it's hallucinating, like, no, it's wrong. Um, what is the craziest answer you've heard a contestant say? This is the most popular question we have today. The craziest answer? Yeah. Like, uh, hmm. I mean, the, the, cra the fa most famous game show answer is in the butt, right? Right. There are, there are a few Jeopardy equivalents of the old Bob Eubanks yeah. in the butt. Um, at, at one point, somebody says... There's something about it, an answer about a, they're all very gentle because it's Jeopardy. There's something about a trio and somebody buzzes in and says threesome, I think, at a, at a very inopportune moment. Somebody says, somebody says rabbit punch. There's a clip of somebody saying, I, I've, I've done one of these where uh, the clue was uh, a long-handled garden instrument that also means a loose, an immoral pleasure seeker. And I buzz in to say, what is a hoe? And I, 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 immediately, I, I realize immediately it is not what is a hoe. But it's too late. You know, like the, the avalanche is already going. And I say, what is a hoe? No, it turns out, what is a rake? 
What is a rake is correct. What is the hard, I don't know how you measure this. What is the hardest question you've had on Jeopardy? You must get this question a lot though. Well, again, you know, we are not trying, I think the misconception is that we're trying to, to trick or uh, stump these people. No, the game only fails when they are not tricked or stumped, when they, can, when they can get to the bottom of every clue. But that said, we do sometimes gauge things wrong. And now that I see the clues in the morning in advance, it often leads to spirited discussions about what is too hard? What are they gonna get wrong? What are they gonna get right? We had Aung San Suu Kyi, the former uh, Burmese president. Wait, is she still president? No, she was deposed, I think. And uh, as a response, and I was like, what if they give partial names? Like Burma doesn't have surnames and first names. What if they mistakenly say Suu Kyi or Aung San? The writers are like, it'll never happen. And I'm like, please, just tell me what to do if this comes up. I do not want to be out there twisting in the wind on this. It won't happen. Sure enough, somebody buzzes in and says, who is Aung San? And I just like do some death stare at the writers. <laughs> And they're like, okay, we'll take it. For the Masters tournament we're doing right now, we have put in clues that I thought were impossibly difficult. And these haven't aired yet, so I don't want to name check anybody. But you know, I'm like, what, a 19th century neoclassical cabinet maker? No, nobody's going to get this. And then these players just confidently, boop, you know, they know everything. Um, so it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to make it too hard for the 19th best. century neoclassical cabinet maker? This is the kind of thing that I said, take me this, all. Is not, this is not going to play. I do not have that one available. Well, which one, I guess, is the question. There's so many good ones. Well, well put. Does the, I'm not sure about the technicality here. Does the law preventing contestants who knows a show staffer complicate your relationship with your Jeopardy friends? That's actually that one out, I think I'm a little confused. So there, there are rules about yeah. fraternizing. With... If you try out for Jeopardy, you have to say, I'm not related. I'm not, I don't work for Sony or any of these other affiliates. I, I don't know anyone who does. If you have any relationship with someone there, you have to disclose. And it'll disqualify you. We, the, uh, I've seen contestants actually, we've started a show and had somebody recognize a contestant's surname and have to swap somebody out at the last minute because it turns out, oh, your dad's my lawyer. This is a, this is a terrible look. Game shows are still... Uh, regulated by the FCC because of the scandals in the 50s. If something there's, untoward a there's, there's a whole movie about it. If something untoward happened on Wheel of Fortune, it wouldn't just be on the cover of TV Guide. Like There could be congressional hearings again, and people could go to jail. So we take these things seriously. And when Alex was hosting, this was not a big deal because Alex had not spent 20 years out there mingling with uh, America's trivia intelligentsia. You know, he, he barely went to poker night, I think. Um, but I do know a lot of these people. And so we've kind of had to think about, well, what are the guidelines? Like, if you met Ken incidentally five years ago, that's fine. You know, if you've got an email conversation with him, just disclose that and we'll make sure that's, you know, once it's been disclosed, that's kind of fine. It's an evil, it's a level playing field. We just don't want things to come out. So, so it seems are there, like do you have to a, turn down drinks or dinner? Like, I can't, I can't hang. Uh, there are Jeopardy ex-contestants who are friends of mine who now I feel like I shouldn't hang out with because um, you know, they, we might have them back in a, in a future tournament, and it's a bad look if I've had dinner with you, but not you or you. I mean, luckily, some of those people are James Holtzauer, so hanging out with them is not a huge social loss. And now a question from James Holtzauer. Um, Wait, that's his music. He's walking into the ring. How can I watch your original 74-game run? I literally can't find episodes anywhere. I'm too young to have watched them live. This is someone who wants in. So this is the rare Young Jeopardy fan. This always makes me feel very old. Kids actually like it. It's kind of bimodal. Young people like Jeopardy. Then at some point in your life, you know, at 7 o'clock, you're busy, you know, making dinner or driving your kids somewhere or coming home from work, and you do not build your life around Jeopardy or Will anymore. But right around your 50s, oh, here it comes. 
Here comes evening game shows. Um, so kids do like the show. Yeah, this is related to the affiliate problem. They do not want, you know, the people who air Jeopardy don't want easy streaming access to old shows. We do run, um, I think this, this is coming. This is the future, obviously. Jeopardy On Demand is coming. Pluto TV, which is one of these ad-supported free streamers, uh, has a library of shows we rotate through. Um, so probably they have some of their probably airing some of my old shows now. Um, Is BitTorrent still a thing? <laughs> yeah, I think there might be ways, Yar. And if Ken is... is not telling you to pirate old Jeopardy episodes. Absolutely not, I could get fired for that. You mentioned how diehard fans dislike changes in Jeopardy, we've talked about that a bunch. How does your gratitude towards these fans compare to resenting their reluctance to accept change? <laughs> no, I don't want to say there's resentment because I'm one of them. Like, I grew up watching the show and the thing I love about it is the comforting rhythms of it. Like I, to this day, I, you know, I love watching my host. I enjoy hosting, but I just want to hear Alex out there. You know, I'm, I, I feel like hologram Alex should be hosting Jeopardy quite honestly. So I'm a traditionalist myself and I'm deeply grateful to people who make it part of their evenings because I am, I'm one of you. What do you think of the professionalization of Jeopardy? This is also what we've been talking about. Claire McNair's book says that was a very polarizing change. It's a theme we keep talking about change and whether it's good or not. Yeah, I mean, it is the future. Um, a, t a team can't decide they're not going to play Moneyball because it turns out Moneyball is the way to play. In this case, you know, game shows have traditionally been kind of a, a lark, you know? You grow up watching these normal folks who, you know, it's just some uh, salesman from Pasadena and suddenly they've won a, a dining set and that's nice, you know? But the thing about the professionalization of Jeopardy is these are still normal people. You know, it's still, the dynamic's still the same. Regular folks who have never been on TV are coming on and winning a dining set, and it's a nice thing for them. Um, the only difference is they worked a lot harder. And I think that's fine because that's a level playing field too. You know, anybody has access to these online archives of, of Jeopardy clues. It's, um, it's free resource, and we want everybody to get better. We, we want to lift all boats. How do you feel when a long-standing champion like Matteo Roach or Matt Amodio, sorry if I pronounced Matt's name wrong, right. is taken down? Is it a melancholy moment or is it exciting? Both. You know, when I lost um, my last game, I remember this kind of feeling of relief, like, oh, like I, I know how the story's gonna end. Like, this has been a very tense few months and I, I didn't realize it until the tension was gone. You know, the audience gave a big standing ovation and I thought they were cheering for the woman who had beaten me. And I, and I did it too. I was like, yeah, you know, that was, you know, that was great. And it wasn't until later that I was like, oh, at least some of that might have been like for the end of the run. You know, they're, they're cheering for the 74 game streak. So, you know, an upset like that is two things. It's an amazing win for a player who never thought they were going to. And you can see it on their face. Nobody likes to show up for Jeopardy and hear they're playing against a 30 game champ. So you can always see the shock just, I can't believe, they're outside of their body. They cannot believe this has just happened to them. And that's just a lovely moment. But as somebody who's been in both, I can't believe I just won and, uh, oh, it's over. You know, I feel both emotions at once. Will Jeopardy be affected by the writer's strike? Jeopardy does use guild writers. We have a team of WGA writers and they are the stars of Jeopardy. We could not do that show without them. And it would be, you know, the quality people associate with Jeopardy is largely their skill, their voice, their precision as to making sure these questions are ironclad factually and will play well, enjoyed both by the audience and by the very smart contestants. It's a, such a hard job and they make it happen at incredible volumes. You know, a half hour of Jeopardy 
has 61 clues plus a, a one or two spares in every category just in case something goes wrong. So 70, 80 clues a night. Um, it's just a remarkable workload. And luckily, uh, the strike being called in May, we had already locked games for the rest of the season by the time the strike was called. So you're good until when? How, how much? End of the season. Um, we have a hiatus for the studios to come to their senses and actually pay writers what they're worth. And I hope that happens. There is this thing, I don't know how real it is, but there's a discussion in, in, in the negotiations about whether or not AI can be used to produce scripts. Um, I'm pretty dubious about that in many cases. In this particular case, it really seems like it's interesting. you could do a lot with chat GPT and AI and, and maybe not replace writers, but certainly augment them or, or reduce the workload, whatever it is. Is that, is that a possibility? Yeah, because Jeopardy clues have a canon, there is a real, you know, there's a big corpus that you can rely on to see here's, here are the patterns that make for a, a clue that feels Jeopardy and a response that works for Jeopardy, and here's what doesn't. And even, a, you know, you could train a very naive AI to do some of that. I still feel like much is missing because Jeopardy clues will still surprise me. Every day I'll see a category that kind of has a funny format or conceit or, you know, is a pastiche of other things, and I will... You know, you don't laugh out loud at a Jeopardy clue, but whatever, uh, a sensible inner chuckle. And I will have one of those SICs multiple times on, on a good Jeopardy board, and I'm skeptical that ChatGPT can give me those sensible inner chuckles that viewers crave. So, Pro-human. Pro-human. Do you think you'll host Jeopardy until you retire? Until I retire from Jeopardy? Yes, guaranteed. <laughs> It'll be the same show, in fact. Uh, Alex hosted for 38 years, and I started at 48, which means I'm very unlikely to equal his run. I would be 86. But it's a, I mean, on any level, it's a good gig. You know, we do five shows in a day, which means the host of Jeopardy, and right now we've got two, so I'm only doing half the lift, um, works maybe 46 days a year. I mean, that's, I don't see how, my union did a great job. I'm, I'm very glad that I could work. 46 days a year and make a living. It's a great side hustle, even if you've got a sitcom about a cat cafe. Uh, the, um, and then, but the real thing is just that I'm still associated with the show that meant so much to me as a kid. But I had a sense of closure when I lost on Jeopardy, but the next day waking up in my hotel realizing, oh, I don't get to play Jeopardy today, and I probably never will again, because it's one to a customer. I mean, occasionally, you know, every five or 10 years, a tournament maybe, but my favorite thing was, was over, you know? And now it's the equivalent of the athlete who gets to be the third base coach or, or the halftime show. You know, I still get to go to Jeopardy. I still get to hang out with my people. Um, and it's an honor to be associated with the show that even as a 10-year-old changed my life and, and made me who I am. You got a great gig. You're good at it. It was a thrill to ask you questions here today. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It was a Thanks pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thanks again to Ken Jennings. That was super fun. Thanks again to the Crosscut Ideas Festival for hosting us, to Jelani, Travis, and Chris Shirtliff for fixing those audio files, for technology for helping them fix those uh, audio files. We also like advertisers, we like our audience, we like all of you guys, and that's why we will see you next week. See you then. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking. From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 